like to have you turn, if you will, to Colossians chapter 2. Colossians chapter 2. Now, the Apostle Paul, having, having received a visit from some people from the church of Colossae while he was in Rome, in prison, uh, spoke primarily, I'm sure, to Epaphras, who was considered the, the pastor of that uh, particular church. And uh, what was shared had to do with a uh, Gnostic heresy, the uh, heresy of Gnosticism that had come into some of the churches of that area. Uh, we've talked a lot about the strange mix that uh, this Gnostic heresy took uh, involving Greek philosophy and Jewish legalism. Those two things we've kind of touched on a little bit over the last few weeks. And uh, then today we're going to move from the legalistic aspect, uh, though we're going to talk a little bit more about it, but then move into uh, the addition of Eastern mysticism that was coming into the church at that time as well. So Paul has uh, made it very clear that our foundation is in the person and work of Jesus Christ, who is supreme. Uh, so he, he dealt in chapter 1 primarily with the supremacy of Jesus Christ, the superiority of Jesus Christ, and the work of Christ, who is God in the flesh, without any doubts whatsoever from the, from the scriptures. And we've covered that as, as completely foundational to how to deal with heresies, and in particular, a Gnostic heresy that actually continues on to, to this day, uh, where churches today are beginning to embrace some of the philosophies of men. They are continuing to embrace things that pertain to uh, uh, legalism and uh, primarily uh, in the area of mysticism, embracing things, for example, like uh, the New Age movement and uh, New Age philosophies and New Age techniques, uh, which involve things that pertain to Hinduism and yoga and a bunch of other things that are not of the Lord. And, and it's clear they're not of the Lord. And what, what are we doing messing with them and bringing them into the church? They only come in because they put the Word of God aside. So... Uh, we go to the word of God to see clearly then what God is giving us to stand upon. We stand upon the word, the logos of God, who is Jesus Christ, and we stand upon the word of God uh, through the power of the Holy Spirit to understand. And, and this is how we begin to discern the spirits that uh, we have to deal with. And we're going to talk a little bit about that as well in the next few weeks. But uh, verse, verses 16 through 23 is the last section of chapter 2. Do not get the idea that we're going to study every verse today. Just wanted to let you know that up front. So, in verse 16, as we left off last time when we were dealing with the issue of Sabbath, it says, Let no man therefore judge you in meat or in drink or in respect of a holy day or of the new moon or of the Sabbath, which are a shadow of things to come, but the body or the substance is of Christ. Let no man beguile you of your reward in the voluntary humility or in a voluntary humility and worshiping of angels, intruding into those things which he hath not seen, vainly puffed up by his fleshly mind, and not holding the head, which means not holding fast to the head or not holding strongly the head, who is Christ, from which all the body by joints and bands, having nourishment ministered and knit together 
increaseth with the increase of God. Wherefore, if you be dead with Christ from the rudiments of the world, why, as though living in the world, are you subject to ordinances? There's that word again that we saw back in verse 14. Touch not, taste not, handle not, which all are to perish with the using. After the commandments and doctrines of men, which things have indeed a show of wisdom in, in will worship and humility and neglecting of the body, not in any honor to the satisfying of the flesh. Now we will come back and of course deal with uh, in a much more deeper way in, in the rest of that passage. We're going to look at verses 16 through 18 today. But it is of utmost important, uh, of, uh, of utmost importance, I should say, to remember that as God the Father looked upon his only begotten Son on the cross of Calvary, rather than seeing the words that were emblazoned above Jesus' head placed there by Pontius Pilate, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews, what the Father saw was a totally different inscription. He saw the ten handwritten ordinances given at Sinai. And you might ask, well, how can you say that? Well, I say this based on the statement that Paul made a few verses earlier. So I'd like to direct you back to verse 13, where Paul said, And you being dead in your sins and the uncircumcision of your flesh, has he quickened together with him? In other words, he's made them alive together with Christ. Having forgiven you all trespasses. Now notice verse 14. Blotting out the handwriting of ordinances that was against us, which was contrary to us. And Paul's use of the word us here signifies that he's really talking about Jewish people because remember where Jesus was was crucified outside of the gates of Jerusalem. But it's coming back to that handwriting of ordinances that was against us, which was contrary to us, and took it out of the way, nailing it, notice, to the cross. That phrase, nailing it to the cross. We have to remember this, that under Roman law, it was customary to nail a placard with a criminal's offenses written clearly above the head, either on a cross or on the gallows used to hang or to impale the guilty offender. It was to let everybody know why they were being executed. And to the people, the inscription, Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews, told them that he was being crucified because he made himself a king and was thus disloyal to Caesar. But don't forget it was Pontius Pilate who put that above his head. Tremendous tension arose between Pontius Pilate and Jesus before the crucifixion. But the reality was that the law given to Moses on Mount Sinai had been broken in every point. And for this reason, Jesus came and poured out his blood, giving his life to redeem us. To redeem Jew and Gentile from the curse of the law. That is why Jesus came. 
It was at the cross of Christ that the law which we had so dishonored, we, Jew and Gentile, we had so dishonored, was magnified to the fullest extent as Jesus himself satisfied and fulfilled God's justice. It is in this that Jesus Christ became the end of the law to everyone who believes. In Romans chapter 10, verse 4, the Apostle Paul writes this, For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone that believeth. Now, understand that he says, for Christ is the end. He is the goal. He is the finish line. He is the point aimed at of the law. Jesus was the finish line of the law for righteousness to everyone that believeth. By his death on the cross, taking our place there, Jesus met every claim made against us and canceled the debt none of us could ever pay. And because of this, we who believe in the person and work of Jesus Christ share in every result of that sacrifice on our behalf. We are one with him. We are one with him. As he identified with sinful flesh, taking upon himself flesh when he came, so we now identify with Jesus Christ in his death, in his burial, and in his resurrection. And it brought to mind this great statement of Paul in Galatians chapter 2, verses 19 through 21. A passage that includes probably one of my favorite verses of scripture. But it begins in verse 19, for I through the law am dead to the law. Now if anyone would understand this and be able to say this with great confidence is somebody who had declared himself at one time to be a Pharisee of the Pharisees, a Hebrew of the Hebrews. When it pertained to law, he was righteous in every way. This is how Paul saw himself before he came to Christ. But now he who understands these things and realizes what Christ had done said, for I through the law am dead to the law that I might live unto God. And then he says, I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. And then Paul said, I do not frustrate the grace of God. For if righteousness come by the law, then Christ is dead in vain. If you can be made righteous by the law, then Jesus dying on the cross was worthless and empty. And so the law and all of its rites and rituals and ceremonies were given to man in the flesh. But we as believers are not in the flesh. This is what, this, this is what the New Testament teaches us. We're, we as believers are not in the flesh, but we're in the spirit. Oh, I mean, we're in the flesh. I mean, I mean I'm not, I, I can't go through my arm like, you know, like a phantom, you know. I mean, this is, after a while, if I keep doing this, it's going to hurt me. So we're still in flesh, but we don't live by the flesh any longer. We live by the Spirit of God and by the Word of God. And the law has nothing more to say to the person who is now beyond death's reach. And I'm speaking of eternal, eternal life, eternal death. We're beyond death's reach eternally. 
Though these bodies may die, we who are in Christ will live forever. That is the promise of the resurrection for everyone who believes. So simply, our new relationship with Jesus Christ enables us to obey God out of love, not out of fear. Our new relationship with Jesus Christ enables us to obey God out of love and not out of fear. I've made this introductory statement to remind us of Paul's serious admonition to the Colossian church as well as to us. Not to let themselves be troubled or burdened by anyone or anything that would put them under the law in any way, shape, or form. This is why Paul says in verse 16 of Colossians 2, Let no man therefore judge you. Let no man therefore judge you in meat or in drink or in respect of a holy day or of the new moon or of the Sabbath, which are a shadow of things to come, but the body is of Christ. God's light shined upon his Son. And sadly, too many people were looking at the shadows instead of the substance. Now, the word therefore in verse 16 is a most significant word here in that it points to the basis for our freedom found in the statements Paul made in previous verses, but leading up to this one. The body or the substances of Christ. In other words, the foundation for our freedom from the ordinances of the law is the person and work of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. What, is, what, what did we learn back in verse 9 of this chapter? That all the fullness of the Godhead dwells bodily in Jesus Christ. What did we learn back in verse 14? We learned that on the cross, Jesus Christ canceled our debt and the dominion of the law. He canceled our sin debt and the dominion of the law. The law having dominion over us. I want you to consider, if you will, Romans chapter 6. Romans 6, verses 14 through 18. For it is here that Paul says, For sin shall not have dominion over you. For ye are not under the law, but under grace. What then? Shall we sin because we are not under the law, but under grace? God forbid. I really believe it's, it's a sad thing, that, and, and this has gone on for ages, I'm sure. But I think it's a sad thing when people think that now that I've come to Christ and I'm, you know, I'm no longer under the law and under grace, I can do whatever I want to do. I, I mean, I used to, I used to just kind of like get really upset when I'd see this TV commercial on one of the channels, the local channels, where, uh, you know, usually around, uh, you know, a, a, a national holiday like July the 4th or whatever, they... Uh, they'll ask people, you know, well, what do you, what do you say, or what do you think freedom is? And they'll say, well, freedom is doing whatever you want to do. And I'm like, ah, that's not freedom. Because if you're doing anything that harms other people, or if you're doing anything that harms yourself, or if you do, I mean, all of these things, there, there's no freedom in that. That's, that's bondage. People need to understand what, what true freedom is. But the word says, shall we sin because we're not under the law but under grace? And, you know, God forbid. Know ye not that to whom ye yield yourselves servants to obey, 
his servants you are to whom you obey, whether of sin unto death or of obedience unto, uh, unto righteousness. But God be thanked that you were the servants of sin, but you have obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine which was delivered you. Being then made free from sin, you became servants of righteousness. Servants of righteousness. So now we're free to serve the Lord. We're free to walk in a manner worthy of our calling. We're free to express the love of God and the love of Christ, both to the believer and to the unbeliever. We're free to stand and to love the word of God like we've never loved anything in our lives. And we're free to love Jesus Christ. No matter what any government or any people or any religion other than Christianity says. The Gnosticism of Paul's time now that was infecting the Colossian church along with other churches around that area contained a number of Jewish elements that the Gnostics believed would enhance the fleshly desires of spiritual advancement and achieving of greater levels of spirituality. In other words, well, if we uh, incorporate some of these things into your religious practice, well, then you're going to go up this stepladder of, of, of spirituality. Which says what? Well, you're going to be better than those that haven't gone up that ladder. Well, where do we find that in the scriptures? Let's take, for example, what we've already studied before, the issue of circumcision or the keeping of the Sabbath. Or as we see here in verse 16, the observance of feast days. Days, the observance of months, like the new moon every month. Uh, we talked a little bit about that a few years, a couple of years ago when we were studying the, the feasts of Israel in Leviticus chapter 23. Uh, and also they had a feast of years. For example, once a year, Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. Back when there was a temple or, or tabernacle, there was a, a one day that the high priest would enter in, that was the one day to offer sins for the whole of the people. But then added to those observances that we find here in verse 16, to the days that are mentioned would also be diet. Because he said very clearly there in verse 16, he said, let no man therefore judge you in meat or in drink. That's diet. But true and faithful Christianity is not a matter of diet. Why do we know that? Because Paul very clearly said, let no man judge you in meat or in drink. Now let me just kind of open this up really quickly here, but when you start getting into certain types of spiritual mysticisms, incorporating Hindu practices or even Buddhist practices, diet is a very big thing. So how you keep, you know, the, the, some of those, those particular dietary things are... Are, uh, you know, are making you actually special and above everybody else. Well, we don't eat this and we don't eat that. You know, that kind of thing. But legalistic regulations from a religious perspective pertaining to foods and drink always have to do with what is partaken of and what is abstained from. There is partaking and abstaining. Partaking and abstaining. You can eat this, don't eat that. You can do this, you don't do this. Well, under the Old Covenant, of course, we know this, 
And by the way, it's the Old Covenant system. Under the Old Covenant system, foods were classified as either clean or unclean. Leviticus chapter 11. Again, something given to the Jewish people in the law. But even Jesus himself made it clear that food and drink were not the issue. Food and drink were not the issue. Turn to Mark chapter 7. And there in Mark chapter 7, verses 18 through 23, both to his disciples and to those who were confronting him, he saith unto them, Are you so without understanding also? Now remember, these are Jesus' words. These are not my words. These are Jesus' words. I believe them because Jesus said them. So he said this, Do ye not perceive that whatsoever thing from without, outside of the body, without entereth into the man, it cannot defile him? And he's speaking of what you take in as far as food is concerned. Whatsoever thing from without entereth into the man, it cannot defile him, because it entereth not into his heart, but into his belly. What's he talking about? Eating. And goeth out into the draft, purging all meats. Now that's a nice, nice, nice phrase when he says, you know, it goes out into the draft. It just means, you know, it goes into the latrine. I thought latrine was better than other words. That's what he's saying. Purging all meats, which, which talks about the purifying of all meats. And he said, that which cometh out of the man. Now remember what he's talking about here. Now he's not dealing so much with physical, he's dealing that with that which is spiritual. He says, that which cometh out of the man, that defileth the man. And notice that he clarifies that in verse 21. For from within, out of the heart of men, proceed evil thoughts, adulteries, fornications, murders, thefts, covetousness, wickedness, deceit, lasciviousness, an evil eye, blasphemy, pride, foolishness. Out of the heart of men. Folks, aren't we seeing this all around us today? What happened here a few weeks ago in El Paso? What happened yesterday in Midland, Odessa? What is happening day by day by day in this country as well as around the world? Out of the heart of men. All these evil things come from within and defile the man. Again, he made it clear. Now what comes into the body, that just goes out. But what comes into a man, through his eyes, through his mind, into his heart, that defiles him. And it was a lesson, by the way, that Peter himself was learning at that moment because Peter was there as one of the disciples. But then later on he had to learn it again. He had to learn that lesson in Acts chapter 10 when he was prompted to go to the city of Joppa to go and meet in the house of a Gentile, Cornelius. We're told in Acts 10 verse 9 and following, it says, On the morrow, the next day, as they went on their journey and drew nigh unto the city, Peter went up upon the house to, housetop to pray about the sixth hour. And he became very hungry and would have eaten. That's like a lot of us. 
Sometimes we just go up to pray, and then before you know it, you're ready to eat something. Sometimes that's a distraction for praying. Yeah, but we'll go there for another time. He became very hungry and would have eaten, but while they made ready, he fell into a trance. Now, we're not going to talk about trances right now, but let me just say that what this was was really was, was put into a position where he could actually receive a vision from the Lord. And he saw heaven open, and a certain vessel descending unto him as it had been, a great sheet knit at the four corners and let down to the earth, wherein were all manner of four-footed beasts of the earth, and wild beasts, and creeping things, and fowls of the air. And there came a voice to him, Rise, Peter, kill and eat. But Peter said, Not so, Lord. I've always loved Peter's forthrightness. He said no to the Lord. That wasn't good, but <laughs> in any event, he said, Not so, Lord, for I have never eaten anything that is common or unclean. And the voice spake unto him again the second time, What God hath cleansed, that call not thou common. What God has cleansed. This was done three times. Hey, Peter. And the vessel was received up again into heaven. That was the second lesson given to Peter. He would receive a third lesson from Paul himself when Paul confronted him about the fact that he was afraid to eat with the Gentiles when the Jewish believers had come down from, from Jerusalem. And Paul said, that's wrong. That's, that's hypocritical. So it took a while for Peter to understand that lesson. But there was something that Paul, again, the, the, who was Saul of Tarsus at one time, who understood the law inside and out because he was in, indeed a, a, a Pharisee and he was indeed one who knew the word of God. Uh, he writes in 1 Corinthians 8 verse 8, but meat commendeth us not to God. Meat, as far as food is concerned, commendeth us not to God. For neither if we eat are we the better, neither if we eat not are we the worse. In other words, what Paul was saying in this verse is, foods don't bring us near to the Lord, or even make us acceptable to God. So what he's saying is we're not any worse off if we don't eat. And we're no better off if we do eat. That pretty much sums it up in reference to meat and drink. Foods don't bring us nearer to God. They don't make us acceptable to God. They don't commend us to God. But pertaining to the Old Testament law, let's remember that it still reveals the holiness of God, doesn't it? And the holiness of God is a very important thing for all believers in Jesus Christ. 
I wish we were more acutely aware of the holiness of God in the church today. I used to say many years ago that what's happened in the church is that they went from having a high view of God and a low view of man to a high view of man and a low view of God. But God is holy. And that attribute, that characteristic of God is the only one in all of Scripture that is multiplied three times in Isaiah chapter 6 where it says, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God. We know that he is called righteous, that he is called just, that he is called true, that he is merciful, he is gracious, he's a God of love, but never do we see those repeated the way they're repeated in Isaiah chapter 6. So the law is important for us to understand. This is why we study from Genesis to Revelation, not just from Matthew to Revelation. It reveals the holiness of God, and in the law, Jesus the Messiah can also be clearly seen. After Jesus' resurrection, we mentioned this last time, that Jesus uh, had appeared to a couple of disciples on the road to Emmaus. And one of the things that he did was show them from the Old Testament where he was in the Old Testament, from, you know, from, from Genesis all the way to, well, in the, in the Christian Bible, the, the, to Malachi, or from Genesis all the way to Second Chronicles, if you have a, a Hebrew Bible. But nonetheless, in Luke 24, verse 27, it says, And beginning at Moses, the Torah, the first five books, that's the law. Beginning at Moses and all the prophets, he, Jesus, expounded unto them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. What a lesson to have received from Jesus. Here I am. Oh, here I am. Here I am. Every book <laughs> from Genesis to the end of the Hebrew Scriptures. Every book. Even in the law. Paul in 1 Timothy 1 verse 8 says, But we know that the law is good if a man use it lawfully. The law is good if we use it properly. If we use it rightly. But never forget that the law only reveals sin. The law reveals sin and it warns of its consequences, but it doesn't have any power whatsoever to prevent sin or even to redeem the sinner. The law cannot prevent sin. The law cannot redeem the sinner. Only grace can do that. Only grace can do that. Hebrews chapter 10 verse 1 says this, For the law having a shadow of good things to come, and not the very image of the things, can never with those sacrifices which they offered year by year continually make the comers thereunto perfect. But then we hear this grand, grand statement in Ephesians chapter 2. In verses 7 through 9 that says that in the ages to come he might show the exceeding riches of his grace, his charis, his undeserved favor. And that not of our, uh, I'm sorry, uh, in his kindness toward us through Christ Jesus 
For by grace are ye saved through faith. And that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. So it is essential to see what Paul is saying here in Colossians chapter 2. Let no man therefore judge you in any of these things, because the law has come to its point of conclusion in Jesus Christ. In Christ Jesus, who is the end, the goal, the finish line, and the point aimed at in the law. So now we're going to go from legalism to mysticism. And we'll begin by reading verses 18 and 19 of Colossians 2. It says, let no man beguile you. So let no man judge you, and let no man beguile you of your reward in a voluntary humility and worshiping of angels, intruding into those things which he hath not seen, vainly puffed up by his fleshly mind, and not holding the head, from which all the body of joints or by joints and bands, having nourishment ministered and knit together, increaseth with the increase of God. Now we're going to deal with all of that soon, but we want to just look at verse 18 here uh, a little more specifically today. So this section of Paul's letter now brings us to the battle, the battle between the person and work of Jesus Christ versus Gnostic mysticism that is based on, and, and please write this down if you can, it is, uh, the Gnostic mysticism is based on demonic slash humanistic spiritualism. Gnostic mysticism is based on demonic humanistic spiritualism. I was going to say only humanistic spiritualism, but no. It has to begin with the enemy of our souls. It has to begin with Satan. It has to begin with the devil. And the word that is foundational to our understanding here is this admonition, or to understanding this particular admonition of Paul, is the word beguile. Katabrabeweto is the word in the Greek. Beguile. It means to rob. It means to defraud. It means to cheat a person out of his reward. It was a word that was used a lot in different areas of life in that time, but it was primarily used in athletics. It was, it was used uh, in the way that uh, the possibility of a, of a judge or a, a referee or, or a, an umpire. Uh, they didn't play baseball in those days, but... but uh, the word umpire was also a, it's, it's kind of a, an older word used of one who would judge sporting events. And if the umpire made a call on someone, uh, you know, that was doing something, but the, he was mistaken of it, but his word stands, you see, they didn't have replay back then. So, the, the, you know, the call would stand, and, and he was robbing and cheating uh, the person who he's accusing uh, of a reward, the reward of winning the match or whatever. Uh, Last night it brought to mind the end of last year's Super Bowl. We won't go there. Anybody remember what happened? Nobody? Oh, okay, a few of you. You just didn't want to admit it on a Sunday morning. 
especially now that football season has just started. Okay, I understand. Praise the Lord. May God bless you. All right. So, beguile means to rob, to defraud, and to cheat a person out of his reward. Now, it is possible. Now, listen carefully to this. It is possible for believers to be cheated out of their reward by false teachers. Now, simply, that happens because we don't discern because we're not in the Word of God. Or we put the Word of God aside. Okay. We'll, go, we'll, we'll get there later. But it is possible for believers to be cheated out of their reward by false teachers. How? By following those who teach that there is another approach to God other than Jesus Christ. That there is another approach to God other than Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is God's appointed way to approach Him, isn't it? And there is no other way. This is what the Scriptures teach us. Jesus Himself said in John 14, 6, I am the way, the only way. I am the truth, the only truth. I am the life, the only life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. The problem with today is, and we see this all the time, we've seen it for uh, time immemorial, is that some people are saying, listen, you need Jesus and something. Jesus plus this. Jesus plus that. Jesus plus Joseph Smith and the Mormon, uh, the Book of Mormon. Or Jesus plus Charles Taze Russell and, and, and the Watchtower Bible and Tract Society or the, the Jehovah's Witnesses. Or Jesus and, and uh, Mary Baker Eddy and Christian Science, which, which is neither Christian or science. All of these things. People are just saying this over and over and over. Jesus is nice. He's good. He's, he's a good model to follow. But let's put something with it. We need something more. We need something more than Jesus. More than Jesus? Really? We'd be carrying more books than we need. He's given us everything about Jesus here. Folks, this idea was birthed in the Garden of Eden. I knew some of you were going to say, oh, here we go again, going back to Genesis chapter 3. Yes! For those of you who have been around long enough, you know that I go there a lot. Because that is foundational to the problems that we see in the world today. It was birthed by the serpent. You don't have to go there. Let me just tell you. You all know this. What did the serpent say? Yea, has God said? Did God really say that? And then once the, uh, the answer was given, he said, oh, you shall not surely die. In other words, you know, if we, if we, eat of the, we can eat of any fruit, you know, any, tree, uh, any fruit of any tree in the garden except for the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil because on the day we eat of that, we're going to die. And he said, you shall not surely die. Your eyes shall be open. He said, this is what's going to happen. Your eyes are going to be open and you shall be as gods knowing good and evil. See, God started you here, but you know, something has to be added to God. Something else has to be added to, to make it a lot more special, to make, to make you a lot more special, to make you uh, uh, just like him. So let's make it clear. We are dealing with the supernatural. So let's make it clear. Christianity is supernatural. It is concerned with a supernatural person, Jesus Christ, who is the son of the living God. He entered into, the time, into this time continuum by means of a supernatural birth. 
He lived a supernatural life, bending the powers of the natural world to accomplish his will. He died in the midst of a display of supernatural events. Then he rose from the dead supernaturally and ascended supernaturally into heaven. Jesus was then followed on earth by another supernatural person, the Holy Spirit, who supernaturally brought the church of Jesus Christ into being, gifted its apostles with supernatural powers, and supernaturally seated the church in the heavenlies. To become Christians, believers in Jesus Christ, we we need a supernatural birth. We become members of the body of Christ, the church, by means of a supernatural baptism of the Holy Spirit. The Christian life itself is a supernatural life made possible possible by only the supernatural indwelling of the believer by the Holy Spirit. You with me so far? And let's not forget that the great hope for the church, in fact, it is called the blessed hope of the church, is a future supernatural event that we call the rapture of the church in which Jesus Christ himself will descend from heaven supernaturally and remove the church, his bride, from the earth and the church will ever be with the Lord Jesus. Everything about Christianity, true biblical Christianity, is supernatural. Even the word of God from Genesis to Revelation is a supernatural book. It is God-breathed, it is authoritative, and it is inerrant. In its manuscripts, its original manuscripts, inerrant. So with all of that said, then why did the Apostle Paul attack the supposed supernatural element in the Gnostic heresy of Colossae? Well, simply because there is another supernatural dimension in the universe, one that is headed by Satan, a supernatural being. Remember, he is one of those principalities and powers. And let me just say this very quickly here. God is the only being that is omnipresent. He is the only being that is omniscient, all-knowing, all-present, and all-powerful. He's omnipotent. He's the only being. I heard someone say the other day that, uh, you know, that, that Satan is, is, uh, is omnipresent, that he can be present, uh, you know, any, anywhere. And I, and I would stand hardly against that. I'll tell you why. Because only God can be omnipresent. At every part of every place that he has created, he alone can be. Satan is not omnipresent, but let me just say he's very fast. He moves fast. Within that realm of, spiritu- uh, of, of, uh, of uh, the powers uh, and principalities and uh, rulers of darkness, they, they move fast. Demons move fast. But he's not omnipresent because he, he, he's not God. There's only one God. Only one God. So there's another supernatural dimension in the universe, one headed by Satan, a supernatural being assisted by a vast army of evil spirits, fallen angels, demons. These are motivated by an abhorrence, by a hatred of Christ Jesus and a hatred of his true followers, and they are determined to deceive by every means possible, if possible, God's very elect. So remember what Jesus said concerning the times in which we are living in today the last days or the latter days. 
Jesus is pointing to this to his disciples. In Matthew 24, verse 24, he said, For there shall arise false Christs and false prophets and shall show great signs and wonders, insomuch that if it were possible, they shall deceive the very elect. If it were possible. The problem isn't with the Lord. The problem is with us. I want you to listen. It is quite possible for us to make one of two mistakes. We can either ignore, disregard, or overlook the whole supernatural side of Christianity as as some religious liberals do today who are uh, running some of the big seminaries, uh, you know, quote-unquote Christian seminaries today that were at one time very right on with the word of God and now, you know, they've thrown the word of God out. They're religious liberals. They, they say that some of the Bible is true and some of it isn't. Boy, for somebody to say that? Ridiculous. So we can ignore and disregard like them the supernatural side of Christianity. Or we can shamelessly embrace the supernatural, generally speaking, naively believing that if it's supernatural, quote-unquote, it has to be of God, just because it's supernatural, like gold flakes coming out of uh, you know the exhaust systems of certain churches today where they're boasting, oh, God's with us because we see gold flakes coming out. I just call it dandruff. Really? How about gold bars? When will they fall out of the sky? It's ridiculous what people are saying. Oh, look, some, I grew a gold tooth. Knock that tooth right out of your head. What does it prove? Folks, understand, what does it prove? People can be deceived. In most of those churches, man, they put the word of God aside. Oh, they'll use it for a verse or two here and there to substantiate their own doctrines, but they don't really believe everything that the word of God says. And sadly, it's a number of charismatic and Pentecostal churches that do these things. So what is necessary to understand is that the natural man is noticeably religious. You see, man doesn't need to be regenerated or born again, as it were, just to search blindly for God. I mean, Paul, in quoting an Old Testament scripture, said in Romans chapter 3, verses 10 and 11, as it is written, there is none righteous, no, not one. There is none that understandeth. There is none that seeketh after God. And we say, well, wait a minute, I know people that seek after God all the time. The difference is this. That is, that none seek after God for God's own sake. None seek after God for God's own sake. They seek, God, they, they seek after a God to, to, to suit their own needs most of the time. They're not seeking after the one true God. I mean, I've talked to people, oh yeah, I'm searching for God. Well, this is the, about Jesus. Well, I don't really believe in Jesus. Well, okay. Then you're not searching for God. Because Jesus is God. In the flesh. And if that's someone, you know, because uh, man is truly incurably religious, as I was saying, he's, he has to have something, he has to have someone to worship. And if that someone is themselves, then so be it. There are a lot of people just worship themselves. They made themselves to be out as God, you know. They're their own gods. But it is Satan who has supplied mankind with all sorts of cults, 
cults of all descriptions to suit every type of mind, no matter how sane or insane those minds may be. So now, getting back to Colossae, the, the multi-layered Gnostic cult claimed not only superior reasoning, that was the philosophies, but they also claimed special revelations. That's the mysticism. The peril that Paul was dealing with was Eastern or Oriental mysticism, which is the belief that a person can have an immediate experience with a spiritual world completely apart from the Word of God or the Holy Spirit. And when bypassing God's Word and Holy Spirit, people open themselves up to all sorts of demonic activity, simply because Satan is an expert in counterfeit experiences. We're told in 2 Corinthians 11, verse 13, for such are false apostles, deceitful workers, transforming themselves into the apostles of Christ. And no marvel, for Satan himself is transformed into an angel of light. And therefore it is no great thing if, he, if his ministers also be transformed as the ministers of righteousness, whose end shall be according to their works. So don't be beguiled into relinquishing your reward. In other words, don't be robbed. Don't be defrauded or cheated of your blessings and rewards in Christ. Stay in Christ's word. Stay in God's word. Stay in fellowship with the Lord. Stay in prayer. Stay in devotion. Constantly look up and keep, keep your heads up because your redemption is drawing near. And there's another factor to note as well. There's a false humility in this approach to God. A false humility. Look at verse 18 again. Let no man beguile you of your reward in a voluntary humility. A person who approaches God through visions and spirits or angels is claiming that they are unworthy to approach God himself. He needs others to approach the Lord for them. What makes this false humility is that the person claims to have visions of angels or spirits which other people don't have. There were those in the Colossian church who were claiming that they possessed special gifts and that they had experienced special visions. <coughs> and yet they were unworthy. Oh, we're so unworthy of such experience. Folks, <coughs> that's a voluntary or self-imposed air of humility about them that really came across as being more spiritual than other believers. Oh, I have this thing. I, I see visions. I see angels and blah, blah, blah. So what? What does the scripture say? We open this up, we see Jesus. And we need to see him in all of his glory. One day, our eyes will be able to see him. Our hearts are what we, we want to see of him today. Open the eyes of my heart, Lord, that I may see you. So the last time I checked, we didn't have to go through any intermediary to receive Christ's blessings. Last time I checked, just a few minutes ago, we read John 14, verse 6. We'll read it again in just a moment. But Jesus already gave us a special invitation, didn't he? I read this last week or the week before. 
Matthew 11, verse 28. Jesus said, come unto me. All ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am meek and lowly in heart. Now that is humility. And you shall find rest unto your souls, for my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. Come unto me. Jesus didn't say, come unto that guy first, and then he'll bring you to me. No, he said, come to me. John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. These are statements that Jesus has made. Can I make one last statement before we close today? It's what God the Father says about Jesus. Are you ready to listen? Turn to Matthew 17, verse 5. Matthew 17, verse 5, on the mount that is called the Mount of Transfiguration, probably Mount Hermon up in the north part of the land. There Jesus took Peter, James, and John. And Jesus was transfigured before them with Moses and Elijah at his side. And while they were having a conversation, Peter was ready to build bulls right there, you know, to honor what was happening. But it says in verse 5, while he yet spake, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them. And behold, a voice out of the cloud which said, this is my beloved son, in whom I am well pleased. And notice the last three words. Hear ye him. Listen to him. Listen to my son. And what did Jesus say? Come to me. What did he say? I am the way. No one comes to the Father but by me. So when people tell you that you need to have Jesus plus something, run away. So walk away. Or let them know what the truth is. And if they don't accept it, walk away. But you've got to stand on what is true. What is true is we don't need special visions and intermediaries. I do struggle. I know some of you may or may not struggle with this, but I struggle with people, you know, there's a lot of money in books nowadays and stories and, you know, people that say, you know, I died and I saw heaven and, and I, was, I was going to hell, but I saw heaven and, and, and now I can come back to tell you. Just remember Luke 16. Just remember about the, you know, the rich man and Lazarus. The rich man says, well, send, send Lazarus to tell my family. He says, even if somebody rose from the dead, they're not going to believe. It's not about any of that. It's about the truth that we have already. And that truth is what sets us free.